Hey, we sound good today. Tech team is on the ball. Thank you, guys. Um, who remembers their kindergarten teacher? Anybody? Mine was Mrs. Toplin. I went to James Russell Lowell Elementary School in Philadelphia at Minden Metro. And she was a great kindergarten teacher because she gave us something every day. She gave us frosted animal cookies. Anybody like frosted animal cookies beside me? Yeah, they're the best. The plain ones, they're okay. But the frosted ones, especially the pink ones, yeah, they're yummy. And we used to, after we'd get our cookies, we'd, we'd say, oh, I have a, I think that's a bull. Maybe a, nope, it's got a horn. It's a rhinoceros. So we'd eat the rhinoceros, and then we'd be the rhinoceros. And we'd roar and stomp and do all the stuff, and we'd be the animal that we ate, whether it was a lion or a bear. That one looks like buffalo. Would you like a cookie? Keep them happy. Okay. One for each of you. Just don't become them, okay? <laughs> See, now that I've grown up, I know that when I eat a lion, I don't become a lion. I don't have to sound like a lion. Or in this case, this is a camel, I think. It's a white frosted one. They're, they're not as good as the pink ones. But when I grew up, I realized that just because I ate a camel didn't mean I was going to grow a hump and kind of spit and lope around because it was just going inside of me. And it made me think about what we eat. You always hear, you are what you eat. And I know a lot of people eat really healthy foods and you know a lot of carrots, but I don't see them looking like a carrot. They might be skinny like a carrot, but... They don't orange, and they don't have green stuff going out of the tops of their head. Well, if you eat too many carrots, you make the orange. But um, and then there are the people that don't make such healthy choices, like me. And you know, I ate a whole bag of potato chips the other day, but I don't think I look quite like a potato chip. Well, Brian says I don't. So I think when we look at somebody, we can't tell necessarily whether they're a good person or not a good person by what they eat, right? Um, just like when you eat a camel, you can't tell that the person's a camel, right? And I think that's what Jesus was talking about here in the first part of the scripture. Um, the Pharisees were pretty upset with Jesus' disciples. They didn't wash their hands. They didn't follow all those rules. You can only eat meat on certain days. You can't eat that food. You can't eat this one. You have to wash your hands. You have to do this. You have to do that. And Jesus said, hey, wait, you, you got it all wrong. It's not what we put in our mouths. Because, and I'm kind of impressed that he actually knew the whole process of the digestive system. You know, it goes in and it comes back out. Um, he said, but it's what's in our hearts that comes out. So if we are stuffing meanness and anger and frustration and deceit in our hearts, that's what's going to come out of our mouths. Not nice words, not nice actions, things that just aren't quite right. So if we were to become a rhinoceros, you know, just because we ate a rhinoceros doesn't mean we'll be mean like a rhinoceros. So we just have to remember 
that whether we have a rhinoceros or a lion or a bear or a tiger in our stomach doesn't mean we have to be mean and grumpy and growl and grouch. But we have, we have Jesus in our hearts, then we're going to be saying and doing the things that show love and peace and hope. So let's remember that even though we may eat healthy and we are what we eat, we can't tell if someone's a Christian by what they eat, but we can tell if they're a Christian by what they say and what they do. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you that you have given us the food that we need. And we thank you that you have given us hearts and that you take up residence in our hearts. And you help us to say and do the things that show that we are Christians and that we are full of love and joy and hope and peace. Help us to not be mean and grumpy like bears and rhinoceros and lions and all those things. Help us to have the goodness of you show in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that Jesus is Savior to all, Lord of heaven and earth. We pray that as we look into your word this morning that we will be more and more convinced of that truth and that we will bring your great good news to the ends of the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. My brother, who lives out in Minnesota, has four kids, and the oldest one, named Hannah, turned 13 this year. When she was two, and she was still an only child, uh, my brother and sister-in-law were getting ready to move to Israel for nine months so that my sister-in-law could work on her PhD program. And before they left to go there, they came out to visit me. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I had just gotten my previous rescue dog, the dog before Chunk, who we have now, um, Oscar. And Oscar was pretty new to me and definitely new to the family, but he figured out really quickly that when my brother and sister-in-law and Hannah were there, he needed to hang out near the high chair because <laughs> even if she was eating well, this small child was really just kind of flinging food everywhere and Oscar really liked scrounging. And so he was quite happy with Hannah in the house because he knew that he would get extra treats that were different than anything he would normally get to eat. Hannah, as I said, turned 13 this year, and she today is actually, um, her parents are holding a little gathering for her that is sort of like a Christian answer to a bat mitzvah, and people have been asked to come and bring blessings for her, and these blessings are for her to hopefully grow in her own faith and life and goodness, but in order so that she can bless the world in Jesus' name. Something to keep in mind as we look at the rest of this passage. When we first look at this passage, it kind of looks like it's more of the same. It's We've already seen Jesus fighting with the Pharisees, and we've already seen Jesus offending some people, and we've already seen miraculous healings, and there's an almost identical story to the one we heard last week about feeding thousands of people. The only thing that seems to be different about that is the numbers. 
And the most notable thing about this chapter, at first glance, is that place where it sounds like Jesus is a racist. So, it might actually be tempting to gloss over this chapter, because it's a whole lot of repeating and then this kind of confusing thing story. And, um, and so, let's just move on to the next one. Thank you very much. But... Gospel writers don't tend to repeat similar stories, unless they have a reason to. Usually, actually, gospel writers will, if there's a similar story, they'll kind of combine them. This is one reason why some people think that Matthew tends to double people, like we saw a few months ago where there were two demon-possessed men instead of the other gospel writers only list one in that story. Maybe Matthew was combining a few different occurrences, and so he just multiplied the people. Maybe. I don't know. But anyway, the point is, gospel writers don't repeat stories. They usually combine them. And the way that they list the stories that happened with Jesus, they, they don't care as much about the order that things happened. They care more about choosing the stories and putting them in a certain order to emphasize points that Jesus is making in his teaching and in his life and in his ministry. So why does Matthew, and Mark also does this, why do these two guys include two such similar miracle stories? This is another place where we need to notice the arrangement. Both, of, both Matthew and Mark actually put these stories, this group of stories, in the same order. So maybe they happen in this order, but they also have something that's connecting them by theme. We need to keep in mind, especially in the case of Matthew, that he is writing specifically, intentionally to a Jewish audience. And so he has, through this whole book, I mean, almost every chapter has some quotation from the Old Testament, from the prophets. <clears throat> and one of the things that the prophets prophesied was... This, they didn't really talk too much about heaven per se, but they would talk about a messianic banquet, like a party, food, lots of great food. Isaiah 55 is particularly, that's a favorite of mine, and that's a particular um, passage that talks about this messianic banquet. And the feeding of the 5,000, which we looked at last week briefly, is in all four of the Gospels. It is the only miracle besides the resurrection that all four of the Gospels record. And so, because that's true, it is clear that for the Gospel writers, three of whom were Jewish, this 5,000 miracle has a, is a special sign of special significance for Israel. John especially unpacks this. He tells the 5,000 miracle story, and then Jesus gets in the boat, and they go back to, to Galilee, and um, Jesus talks to the people who are asking for more bread, and he says he's the bread of life. But in all four of the Gospels, there is an emphasis on the fact that there were 12 baskets full left over. And that 12, we know, we've already talked about it in this series, that's significant for the 12 disciples, which is significant because there were 12 tribes of Israel. And this is showing that Jesus is somehow fulfilling some of these prophecies in this act. 
Another reason that we can tell that Matthew specifically thinks that that miracle is significant for the Jewish people is because of the stories in this chapter that follow. So, we, because of the way that John tells the story, probably these stories didn't actually, in real time, happen right after um, the feeding of the 5,000. But, in any case, Jesus does get in a boat, and at the end of chapter 14, it says, Matthew tells us that Jesus and the disciples landed at Gennesaret. And Gennesaret is a Gentile area. Matthew, in this chapter, with this group of stories, is about to demonstrate two things. The first thing he's going to demonstrate is Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. That means the fulfillment of everything that Israel was supposed to be. And so he needed to go to the Jews first. But the second thing Matthew's going to demonstrate is the Jews, or the Israelites, were never chosen just for their own sake. Never at any point in their history, for their own sake. What made them special was God's love for all humanity, which he intended to express through their humanity. So this chapter shows us, this is kind of the, the outline of the chapter, Jewish people with a wrong idea about their own Jewishness, leading to a Gentile with the right idea about Jewishness, leading to a preview of Gentiles being included in the Messianic Banquet too. So the first little story that we see in this chapter is another fight between Jesus and the Pharisees. Take note of this. The Pharisees, it says, come from Jerusalem to nitpick Jesus about the fact that his disciples don't wash their hands before they eat. They go to a Gentile place from Jerusalem to talk about their, the disciples' personal hygiene practices. Which tells us there's a little more going on here than personal hygiene practices. Right? They are not really talking about personal hygiene. There was no germ theory back then. They didn't know about that stuff. They are talking about religious and ethnic purity. This is about Jewish identity. So they reference the elders. They say, Jesus, why do your, why do your disciples break the, um, the tradition of the elders who say that you should wash your hands before you eat? And the elders were some very learned interp Jewish interpreters of the Jewish scriptures. And you can still, I haven't actually personally done this, but you can still find their, some of their writings and some of their teachings recorded today. They were basically the commentators, the early commentators of the Jewish um, law and the prophets, and they were important, and they have provided a lot of assistance to understanding those texts from a Jewish um, context, and they really were emphasizing that you know the purity, the holiness, the separateness, the specialness of the Jewish people. That these elders interpreted what it means to be Jewish. A pastor named Matthew Dabbs says he, he kind of sums this up. He says it sums up like this: People started with the law, so the Israelites started with the law at, the, at Mount Sinai after they came out of Egypt, and then it became the law and tradition. 
then law tradition. Eventually it got flipped to tradition and law. That's a little simplistic. It's a, maybe a little more complicated than that, and I'm not really sure how much there was ever this. <laughs> um, but for a simplified understanding of what's going on here, that's kind of what's happening. Washing your hands before you eat is good hygiene, but it is not one of God's purity laws. This is something that the elders developed after, as they were interpreting scripture. So Jesus comes back with, and why do you, why do your disciples not wash their hands? Why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? This is not even an argument about the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. Hand washing is not even the law. Actually, if you really want to think about it this way, it's more the spirit of the law versus the letter of the law, but Jesus is saying, these guys, you guys have the spirit of the law wrong. It's the wrong spirit. And he goes on to show that the Jewish traditions, the things that the elders and now the Pharisees were prescribing, like doctors, as being signs of what it is to be a good Jew, can actually cause people to break the law. This can still happen in churches, where sometimes our traditions get put over the word of God, and we don't even notice it because it's part of our culture. The Pharisees didn't notice it because it was part of their culture. The disciples didn't even notice it because it was part of their culture. The traditions can cause us to break the law of God when we put them on the same level or even above. So, and here's the problem with that. Breaking the law of God, the law of God is what God gave the Jews and now Christians so that we can reflect him to all nations. And if we're breaking that law, we cannot be reflecting him properly. So in this particular story, Jesus is basically saying, God says, honor your father and mother. But you and the elders have come up with this kind of out clause. It's called korban. You, basically, they were saying, if you, you have elderly parents and the, the law says honor your father and mother, but if you have something and you want to dedicate it to God, you want to devote it to God, well, then you're off the hook. You don't actually have to financially provide for your elderly parents. Jesus is saying, probably nobody really thought this out, right? You wouldn't create a law like that on purpose. But somehow this had gotten codified as they were being all brainy and interpreting, and parents, elderly parents, were losing out. And Jesus is calling that out and saying, look, you want to be a good Jew? Honor your heritage by honoring your actual parents. I have this friend who is getting to know Jesus, and um, he and his wife have been reading the Bible and kind of talking about it. And they, recently, I guess, they were sort of batting around whether Judaism is actually better than Christianity. And my friend said, I like Christianity because it doesn't really seem like you could ever really truly convert to Judaism, but Christianity is really open to everybody. Here's the thing, though. Jesus is the fulfillment of Judaism. Judaism was supposed to be for everybody. 
Everybody was supposed to be seeing God, getting to know God through the people of God. So the disciples come to Jesus and they say, do you know the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? The Pharisees were so comfortable with scripture and their interpretation of it, or the elders' interpretation of it, that they thought they understood it, and so they never let it challenge them anymore. But it's possible that the disciples were also a little offended. You ever do that thing where you have something on your mind, you're a little concerned, but you don't want to admit that it's you, so you're like, so what if such and such hypothetical situation I have a friend that is going through this. It's kind of, the Pharisees and the disciples were not friends, but they're kind of, and the Pharisees were, in, were offended by this, but it kind of seems like maybe the disciples were a little offended by this too, because Peter doesn't actually understand Jesus' first explanation. And when, as we look at the rest of this chapter, we'll see that the disciples in the next stories the way that they act doesn't shows that they maybe aren't quite on board with how things are going here in this Gentile territory. And it has something to do with their feeling like maybe their Jewishness is also being compromised. They were the ones being critiqued by the Pharisees, but Jesus is basically redefining what they thought it meant to be Jewish. And that's uncomfortable. We might be uncomfortable if we were told that we were being American wrong and have to think about that. Sometimes even people like these disciples or maybe like us who really love Jesus and are intentionally following him get challenged and offended when Jesus asks us to break out of the box of what we consider to be our core identity, especially when we have linked the, those other aspects of our core identity with our spirituality, with God. This can be offensive. We said last week, there's enough Jesus to offend everybody. Jesus points to the Pharisees and the disciples in verses 16, and 20, 16 through 20 is, eating without washing your hands first literally has no effect on how Jewish you are. Jewish people were concerned about purity, and washing your hands has nothing to do with that. Purity is what's in here. And so if you are hating people, or you're slandering people, or whatever, it, that's, then you're not a good Jew, or you're not a good Christian. If you wash your hands before you eat, but you hate people, you are not a good Jew, because the whole point of being Jewish or being Christian is to reflect God to others. Pastor Deb says, I was under the impression, as we get to this next story about this Canaanite woman, I was under the impression that this person, this Canaanite woman, happened into Jesus' Jewish world, and Jesus made an exception for her. So we know that Jesus is supposed to go to the Jews first, and here comes this Canaanite woman, and she's got this demon-possessed daughter, and she wants Jesus to heal her. And he, and this pastor thought that she just showed up in, like, Galilee or someplace. I thought that, too. I really thought that until 
Actually, until I read this pastor's quote, and then I was like, wait, that's not what happened? And I had to go back and look at this passage again. Clearly, no. He actually goes into the region where she's from, Tyre and Sidon. And so it seems kind of weird then. He goes there. Here comes this woman. She asks for help. And Jesus is ignoring her, and we know he's ignoring her because she's following him and calling out to him to the point that the disciples are annoyed. Make her go away. She keeps calling after us. Make her shut up. She's super annoying. Make her go away. Is he playing games with her? Or the disciples? <laughs> Maybe. Both. Maybe. Kind of. Once again, there's enough Jesus to offend everybody. He has just offended the Pharisees, and he's just maybe offended the disciples. Why stop there? Maybe he wants to offend this lady, too. See what she does. When Jesus offends, here's the thing about Jesus being offensive. He, he really is. When he offends, though, it is to highlight the things in any person's life that is his rival. We all have things that rival Jesus in our lives, even if we've given our lives to him. And he is challenging us to choose. How much do we want him? How much will we put aside the other thing that's important to us about our identity to get to Jesus? He's just challenged the Pharisees' idolatry of their man-made Jewish traditions. And throughout this whole chapter, he's challenging the disciples' understanding of who and what the Messiah came for. And here he's challenging the woman. And he, this challenge is kind of two-sided. First of all, does she know her place? She is a Canaanite, and she is a woman. What do we know about Canaanites? They're the people that were in the land that God had chosen to give to his people, the Israelites, and they were supposed to be taken out of there, and some of them were, and there were people that remained. But Canaanites do not have a good reputation among Jewish people, and so she represents the enemy, even though she's never done anything to these people before that we know of. Probably she hasn't. Um, and she's a woman, and we know that in that society, women had no standing at all. So that's the first. Does she know her place? But second, will she allow her place to keep her from Jesus? Whether we feel like we are worthy or unworthy of God, Either our worthiness, our sense of worthiness, or our sense of unworthiness can get between us and Jesus. The Pharisees thought they were so worthy and so pure that it kept them from Jesus. And this woman could have thought she was so unworthy that that could have put her off. The disciples say, make her go away, and Jesus says, I was sent to, only to the lost sheep of Israel. And I used to think that he was saying that to her. But now I think that he wasn't because after that, she comes and gets right in front of him on her knees and says, Lord, help me. I think he's saying it to the disciples. They say, make her go away. He says, 
I was sent only to the last sheep of Israel. What's she going to do? She gets on her knees and asks for help directly, right in his face. And then he says, and this is the challenge, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. The dogs, dogs were not um, popular among Jewish people at this time. <laughs> that was a really, really, really insulting term. Um, maybe verging on the N-word. Um, definitely a major insult usually used against Canaanites. And the NIV translation that we read this morning, it says, she says, Jesus says, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. And she says, yes, it is, Lord. But other translations say, and I think this is probably more accurate, yes, Lord, meaning you're right. It's not right to give the inheritance of the children to a dog. She is acknowledging the rightness of what he says. She is acknowledging her status. Unlike the Pharisees, she does not allow herself to get offended and doesn't let her offense get between her and Jesus. She, this Canaanite woman, honors the Jewish heritage of the law and the prophets and the Jews being God's chosen people better than the Pharisees, who, at least on the outside, were God's chosen people. And T. Wright says, if God's new life was to come to the world, it would come through Israel. That is why Israel had to hear the message first. If Jesus and his followers had simply begun an indiscriminate mission to the wider world before God's purpose had unfolded, they would have made God a liar. The woman knows this. She's saying, yes, I know I'm a Gentile dog. I know I have no right to the inheritance, but kids drop stuff. I'm here for the crumbs. Wright says, she understands and uses to her advantage in the banter with Jesus. And I like thinking of this as banter. She's smart. She's actually coming at him like, almost like a rabbi to rabbi. She uses to her advantage in the banter with Jesus how God's choice of Israel to be the promise-bearing people for the sake of the world was to work in practice. Yes, she says, dogs can't simply share the children's food, but she insists on her point. If Israel is indeed the promise-bearing people, then Israel's Messiah will ultimately bring blessing to the whole world. The dogs will share the scraps that fall from the children's table. The woman's faith broke through the waiting period. The disciples are not yet ready for Calvary. This Canaanite woman is already insisting upon Easter. And then we get to the next story, and we see that the Gentiles are going to get more than crumbs. They are included in the Messianic banquet. D.A. Carson says, while the disciples may have understood the feeding of the 5,000 Jews as anticipating the Messianic banquet, they were undoubtedly a long way from admitting that Gentiles could share in that. In the feeding of the 5,000, the disciples try to get rid of the Jewish people, their own people, at the end of the day. They suggest they're tired, they want a break. They suggest, hey Jesus, maybe send these guys away so they can go get food. And it's only been a day or part of a day. These people have been with Jesus three days and the disciples apparently have not suggested anything.
just like Jesus waited before sharing crumbs of the kingdom with the Canaanite woman with the demon-possessed daughter, before he heals the daughter, he waits before addressing this crowd's physical hunger. He, and this is what he does. In his earthly ministry, he mostly focuses on the Jews and waits. And the Gentiles are incorporated in Acts, in the early church. But, so he's sort of symbolizing this by delaying. But finally, after three days, he's like, hey, guys, <laughs> did it occur to you? These people are hungry. It's been three days. And they're like, okay, but we're in literally the middle of nowhere. How are we supposed to feed them all? Okay, why would they ask this question? They just saw a miracle like this. Jesus just did this. Why would they ask this question unless they really didn't think the Gentiles were worthy of the banquet the Messiah was preparing? <sighs> How much bread do you guys have? <laughs> we have seven loaves and a couple of fish. Okay, so here's the number symbolism. 5,000 Jews, 12 baskets, 12 disciples, 12 tribes. Here's the symbolism in this one. 4,000 Gentiles, 7 baskets. We know seven's an important number too, right? Seven in the Bible represents completion, perfection, Sabbath. When God rested on the seventh day, the creation was completed. It was great. It was good. It was done. This is where we're headed. Completion is where we're headed. Some believe also that seven symbolizes the number of Canaanite tribes that were in the land when the Israelites came to take it over. There are lists of seven people groups in various Old Testament passages. Symbolizing complete incorporation of all humanity, receiving the feast, not just the crumbs, provided through the chosen people of God. This is what the seven baskets left over and the seven loaves to start with symbolize. The broken bread is distributed. The kingdom of the heavens is fulfilled when, as Matthew tells us, they all ate and were satisfied. Human tradition, external practices like washing our hands and visual symbols of identity will not matter in the heavenly banquet. In the Jewish Messiah, the Gentiles, and not just the Jews, will be treated like true children, not dogs. They will be filled up with a full meal, not just crumbs. The feeding of the 5,000 affirmed the call and the fact that salvation is from the Jews. The feeding of the 4,000 affirms the promise that one day the banquet will be open to all who come to Jesus. And when we have... We've all got baskets full of the bread of life to distribute freely to the people around us, whoever they are, whatever their practices, wherever they come from. And this isn't just us evangelizing with our words. This is in our actions. This is in what comes out of us. We don't, and we don't have to be stingy with it. I only have seven loaves and a couple fish. We have plenty. If there's enough Jesus to offend everybody, there is also enough Jesus to feed everybody. And Jesus multiplied it once before. He can multiply it in us too. 
when what is coming out of our lives is Jesus himself, we will be doing exactly what he always dreamed his people would do. Let's pray. Lord, your servant Matthew tells us they all ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven baskets full of broken pieces that were left over. And Lord Jesus, bread of life, your body was broken for Jew and Gentile alike, and we've been blessed by far more than crumbs. Thank you. May we take baskets of you into our world this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing our final hymn, Here I Am, Lord. <laughs>